the Baptist Broadcast. Thank you so much for tuning in through Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, Anchor.fm. If you're watching here on YouTube, please smash that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. Welcome, welcome. We're going to continue on through this uh, Differences series looking at Roman Catholicism. I'd mentioned that I would probably also, as time permits, do one of these on Lutheranism and Presbyterianism as well. Maybe Anglicanism. Who knows? We, I mean, there's so much we could, so much I could do. Um, it's got to stop somewhere. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens. But um, lately, moving through these seven differences uh, between Baptists and Roman Catholics, we've we've really been uh, bogged down in especially two of them, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We spent two episodes uh, on just baptism and the Lord's Supper, one episode each. And um, and now here we're going to go ahead and move on from there to the final two differences, which would be uh, the doctrine of the saints and Mariology, and then the doctrine of Scripture as it relates to tradition. Those are the last two kind of stops we're going to be making in the differences series in relation to Roman Catholicism. And so let's look at saints and Mariology. I'll turn your attention once more to the Roman Catholic Catechism or the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Um, and it's section four, um, uh, or maybe that's, I always get confused here. Let's see, uh, Catechism. I always need to go and, uh, and get the... Um, kind of get the layout here. So it's part one, section, it's part, let's see, the part that we're in here is part four, four section one, chapter two, article two, number 2679. And in that part of the catechism, it says this, and again, we're talking about saints and Mariology, Mariology especially um, because that seems to be, uh, you know, kind of the linchpin of the uh, of the issue with praying to the saints, the uh, the the one who usually s- sticks out or the one who's most emphasized uh, in that bevy or that group of those whom we can pray to other than God, supposedly, according to Roman Catholicism, would be Mary, uh, the mother of our Lord. And um, and so what they have to say with regard to Mary in that section of the catechism that I've mentioned is this. Mary is the perfect orans or prayer, a figure of the church. When we pray to her, we are adhering with her to the plan of the Father who sends his Son to save all men. Like the beloved disciple, we welcome Jesus' mother into our homes, for she has become the mother of all the living, We can pray with and to her. The prayer of the church is sustained by the prayer of Mary and united with it in hope. Okay, so um, again, there are differing opinions within Rome concerning the place of Mary in relation to God, in relation to redemption. And so not everything you hear is a uh, codified dogma of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, There is a growing movement 
I say growing. Last I checked, it was. I, I don't, but that's been some years ago. I don't know what kind of traction it has now. Uh, but it's the idea, and again, this is a doctrine. It's not yet a universal church dogma. But there is the idea of Mary as the co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix. And the idea of Mary as co-redemptrix is that she is a co-operator with Christ in the redemption of, uh, of the people of God. And um, as abhorrent as that sounds, I thought I would mention it because it is a reality. It is at least a doctrine in Rome or found amongst some Roman Catholics. Uh, there are even schools that are, uh, you know, named after Mary on pretense of her being the uh, co-redemptrix um, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a, it's a relatively uh, well-tractioned uh, belief, though it is not, I, I don't believe at this point, it is not a codified church dogma. So just be aware of that. So I'm not going to, because it's not a codified church dogma, because it doesn't appear um, in the catechism, at least formally, then I will uh, just address the words of the catechism. I will say, however, that the doctrine of Mary as a co-redemptrix is consistent with what I've just read to you. If if Mary is the perfect prayer um, and she is one uh, with regard to whom it is necessary we adhere um, in terms of our salvation and for our good and so on, it would be difficult to get away from the implication that she cooperates with Christ and in the work of redemption and, uh, and particularly in the work of his priesthood. Um, but we'll let we'll go ahead and let that sit, and move on to the subject matter of the catechism. They, the, there's another section. Well, we'll get to the second section in a moment. But um, the issue, I, I'm not going to criticize the Mariology here yet. I'll, I'll get to that when we get to what we believe confessionally. But uh, but the idea here is that um, people, the people of God on earth, so called are encouraged, admonished, and, and in fact must, to one extent or another, pray to Mary. They must approach Mary in prayer, the, uh, uh, let's see, the, um, uh, the pray to, the, 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 the prayer to, to Mary, uh, the, the Hail Mary, um, in the Roman Catholic Church, which is a common standard practice amongst all Roman Catholic practitioners, um, the idea here is that uh, we're not praying to Mary for her own sake, or they're not praying to Mary for her own sake. They are, they are praying to Mary so that Mary can take their prayers to Christ. Christ cannot refuse his mother, given the fifth commandment. And so if we pray to Mary, she takes our prayers to Christ. Christ cannot refuse his mother, and therefore... Um, our prayers will be heard uh, more effectively by those means. And so she is an intercessor, and she is, as it were, a mediator between our between us and our mediator, all right, Christ. Um, there's 
speaking more to saints in general, because it's not just the case that Roman Catholics pray to saints. They also pray. They were not. It's not just the case that Roman Catholics pray to Mary. They also pray to to saints or those who have been formally sainted by uh, by Rome. And um, and the same area of the Catechism, uh, part four, section one, um, chapter. 2, Article 3, 2683, says, The witnesses who have preceded us into the kingdom, especially those whom the church recognizes as saints, so it seems there's provision there to pray even to those who are not sainted, especially those whom the church recognizes as saints, share in the living tradition of prayer by the example of their lives, the transmission of their writings, and their prayer today. They contemplate God, praise Him, and constantly care for those whom they have left on earth. When they entered into the joy of their master, they were put in charge of many things. Uh, their intercession is their most exalted service to God's plan. We can and should ask them to intercede for us and for the whole world, the Catechism says. And again, so uh, much like uh, there, you know, much like we have with Mary, uh, there is uh, the same doctrine uh, extant for the saints in general. So the idea here is that um, Roman Catholic practitioners uh, have not only friends on earth who pray for them, they go to them, and I mean, we, we all do this, right? We, we ask our friends, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for us. Uh, and the idea in Roman Catholicism is that, well, we don't even, we don't, we don't just have our, our, our friends and uh, our, our our, our acquaintances, our brothers and sisters in Christ who live here on earth praying for us, we can also have those who are in heaven nearer to God who are without sin and, and thus perfected, unlike us. We can have them praying for us as well. And the idea here is that the more prayer, the more power. And so if you can have not only your friends praying for you, but you can have the heavenly saints praying for you as well, being as they are so close to God and Christ, then, of course, your prayers will be more affected or effective. So that's that's the, the general—of course, there's more. Again, I'm not being exhaustive here. I'm just trying to give a, a general idea from the primary literature of what is is stated formally. What do Baptists believe? Uh, again, I'm going to read from the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 22, article 2, and it says this, and this is on religious worship. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. Uh, the idea there, of course, is that we we pray to none other than the one mediator. Um, Paul is quite clear, if we go to 1 Timothy 2, 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So this is one of these areas where uh, the Reformers and the post-Reformed uh, Reformation or the Reformed Orthodox would challenge the tradition of the church on the basis of the scriptures or on the basis of the fact that the tradition of the church is contradicting the scriptures. Uh, because here we have the scriptures saying there's one singular mediator, whereas Rome seems to hold 
that there is more than one mediator. In fact, there are several mediators to our mediator. Um, and so there's a few things here that I want to go through. Um, Rome distinguishes two kinds of reverence. There is, uh, there is a, a reverence of honor, um, and there is what is more or less a reverence that is uh, instantiated in the act of worship. And so they would say, well, there is a reverence that belongs to God alone, and that is latria, that is worship properly so-called, and, and that's to be offered to God alone. However, we understand that there's another kind of honor, which we even offer to uh, dignitaries and those of superior status in this life, which we are to, which we are to have toward uh, those who have passed on, particularly the saints and, uh, of course, the, the mother of our Lord. But it's not worship. It's not latria. It's dulia. All right, it's dulia. It's a, it's, a, it's a distinct kind of reverence. All right, and, and there's a distinct kind of reverence that's to be given to those worthy of it. Um, it cannot involve acts distinct to latria. Rome would agree with that. Um, but here's where things seem to become very inconsistent with regard to the Roman Catholic Church. We could make the same distinction, right? We could say, well, there is latria, and that is worship a worshipful reverence that belongs only to God. And then there is Julia. That's this kind of uh, honorary posture toward, you know, human beings. I mean, there's a certain honor that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a certain honor that we have for certain offices. And there's this, this veneration, as it were, for those in leadership, kings, queens, and so on. And, um, and, and so we would say, yeah, that, that's right. I mean, we are to honor pe certain people right? Um, all people in a sense, but there, there seems to be distinct kinds or species of honor depending on the office or, or the status and so on. And so we would, we would make that distinction as well. The problem is here, though, is that Rome says that, they'll, they'll say that, well, we're just honoring, we're just venerating or revering Mary or this statue or this icon of Mary, um, but then they will but then they will uh, act out some performance or action that is proper only to reverent worship scripturally. And what I have in mind here is prayer and prostration. Um, so in Exodus chapter 20, it's the second commandment. Um, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, uh, verse 4, starting in verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So, notice the language here. You shall not make for yourself a, a, a carved image, uh, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them. And there are specific practices in, in, in the Roman Catholic Church that involve this kind of body language where there is prostration. Uh, there is, uh, particularly before the, uh, the, the host or the altar where the Eucharist is kept, um, there is prayer. Prayer. 
In Scripture, there is no single example, not one. You will not find a single example, except for perhaps when Saul goes to the witch of Endor and conjures up Samuel's ghost. There's not one example in Scripture where you will find someone praying to anyone other than God. Not a single instance. There's not a single instance in Scripture. Every time we see prayer in Scripture, whether we're talking about the Old Testament or the New Testament, prayer is particularly aimed at God, addressed to God, and it is particularly associated with worship. So in Scripture, the example that we have for prayer is that there's a single object that is God himself, and it is understood to be an act of worship and a means of grace, per Acts 2.42 and elsewhere. Prostration, obviously, that's the case where not to bow down or, or show, you know, uh, any sort of worshipful reverence toward anything uh, that involves images, pictures, uh, of, of anyone, not even of God, it says. I mean, that's the commandment. You shall not bow down to them. Uh, you shall not make for yourself a carved in, uh, image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. Any Anything, so we're not to presume upon the imagery of heaven. We're not to presume that we can know what Christ, even in the incarnate state, looks like, or according to his incarnate nature, his created nature. We're not to presume that we know what that looks like such that we create an image of it and then worship him through that image. Uh, that would be um, that would be improper, and it would be an act of idolatry, according to the scriptures. Um, there are, in terms of the saints in general, uh, there are places in scripture that, you know, inform... Um, that inform their place, uh, because again, Rome wants to say, well, these are uh, these are those to whom we pray. Uh, you know, in order to in order to, I mean, they're like friends who have gone to be with the Lord, and we ask them to pray for us. That's our prayer to the saints is but a prayer to ask them to take some concern or prayer to. <clears throat> To the Lord. I mean, that's what the that's what the Catholic would might say. Um, and um, in Scripture, if we're talking about what's revealed to us in Holy Scripture, the dead saints are never said to make intercession for us. But we do read things like this. Romans eight thirty four says, "Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, and who also makes intercession for us." We read Hebrews seven twenty five. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, not through anybody else, but through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's the Spirit also who intercedes for us. Likewise, Romans 8.26 says, The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And um, again, you'll have you'll have Catholics who will ask the question, but isn't you know, isn't asking saints in heaven to pray for us just kind of like asking living friends here to pray for us? And the answer, of course, is no. When we ask friends to pray here, we ask them to go to God on our behalf. All right, that's what we do. 
That's what intercession is. If we were to pray to the saints, we would be offering to them what we were asking our friend to offer only to God. Does that make sense? In other words, we're asking our friend, we're asking our friend to pray for us, but if we were to pray to the saints, we would be praying to them, not just asking them to pray for us, we would be praying to them and thus asking them to do what we are doing to them, only that they would do it to Christ or be before Christ, right? So it's just it just puts this chain of mediation between us and the Lord Jesus Christ when Scripture clearly uh, uh, states that there is one mediator between God and man. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end there on um, saints and Mariology, and we'll turn over to, to Scripture and tradition. We've, we've actually got time to do more than one point this, this, this go-around. Scripture and tradition, what does Rome believe? Again, Catholic Catechism, Part 1, Section 1, Chapter 2, Article 2, and paragraph two, number 81. <laughs> it's a big document, quite complex. It says, Sacred Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to, it transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that Enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. As a result, the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of Revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both Scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So they are equal. Scripture and tradition are equal. There is no... Uh, norma normans and norma normata, no norming norm and normed norms or subordinate authorities in Rome. They are put on equal footing. Um, so, and and what it amounts to is 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 to say that scripture is scripture is some of the word of God committed to writing, and tradition includes everything in the written word. But also, it includes the word not written down in Holy Scripture, things that were passed on through ecclesiastical tradition from the apostles onward. So, ecclesial traditions, it says, comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus' teaching and example and what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians, the Catechism says, did not yet have a, a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. This is true to an extent. Now let me let me let's qualify here. Does the new does the New Testament itself assume a tradition? Absolutely. When we're talking about canon, when we're talking about new the, the um uh the uh the composition of the New Testament and the discernment of Christians early on to uh to discern the word of God, uh, yes, there is a tradition. It is still a tradition, however, that is subordinate to the word of God because it is in consultation with the Old Testament. And not only that, um, but it is discerning specific intrinsic marks that uh, show forth uh, the divine nature and origin of those documents, whether they're from God or not. 
And so uh, John Owen's volume one on the Hebrews commentary that he wrote is excellent in terms of canon. What what was the uh, Hebrews was a contested book um, at at one point. And so he goes through, you know, the reasons why Hebrews is justified being in the New Testament canon. And um, he he moves through the rubric of discernment in terms of discerning what book ought to be included in the canon and what books ought not be included in the canon. And so, yeah, there is a tradition. The placement of the tradition, however, is subordinate to the actual word of God. And the reason that is, is because even that tradition um, of, of discerning what book ought to be in the New Testament canon, what book ought not be in the New Testament canon, even that tradition is springing forth from and arising out of these intrinsic objective marks that are distinct to the Word of God. Um, in other words, it's like it's like um, if you were to walk through a forest and you were to come up, uh, upon on your path, you were to come upon a a ruby in the ground. It's embedded in the mud, but you can see the the top of it. And the ruby is not a ruby in virtue of what you think about it. Um, Rather, the ruby is a ruby intrinsically based on its mineral composition and so on. And so you are only an inspector of this gem that you've just run across in the forest on your path. And you are discerning the objective, intrinsic qualities that it has. And you're able to, at the end of your search, discern that that's a ruby and not a diamond. You're able to discern that that's a ruby and not a, a, a hunk of gold or something like that. And you're able to do that because of the ruby itself, not because of anything you impose upon the ruby. Um, and so... The observation in the New Testament canon, canon is very is very similar to that, it, but it's actually more, uh, more so uh, subject or in subjugation in subjugation to the Word of God because again, they are discerning New Testament canon also in light of the Old Testament, and so there is already inscripturated light that is there guiding the early church that the early church is subject to. So yes, is there tradition involved? Absolutely. Is that tradition subject still yet to the scriptures? Yes. Um, It's subject to the scriptures even before the completion of the New Testament canon in the sense that what goes in the the New Testament is, is determined by that which actually goes into the New Testament. What I mean by that is Hebrews is in the New Testament in virtue of what Hebrews is. That is to say, Hebrews is like a ruby, right? And and it is the Word of God, right? We didn't make it the Word of God. Our, a decree didn't make it so. Rather, we observed, based on certain intrinsic qualities of the book of Hebrews, that it ought to be included in the New Testament canon. So the tradition is subordinate even to the word of God, it's subject to an assuming of and presupposing of the written word of God. It it doesn't only have the Old Testament that is shedding light, which is already inscripturated revelation, but it also has certain marks 
that are intrinsic to written revelation, which any prospective New Testament book must meet, must have, and must bear in itself in order to be included within the canon. So there's still a, a subjugation of tradition, even in the process of canonicity, uh, that I think is, is very important to, uh, to observe. So where am I at here? I just uh, read through that that portion of the catechism. Now let's go through what Baptists believe. I, I've just shared some of it. I, I've, I've alluded to some of it, but let's look at Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter one, article one. It says this, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, although the light of nature, that's our natural revelation and natural theology, and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So, God speaks through nature generally. That's true. There is a natural revelation. That revelation is not sufficient unto our salvation, it's sufficient only unto our condemnation. Think of Romans 1.18 through 20, uh, and Romans 2, that the law is revealed, the glory of God is revealed, the Godhead is revealed, um, and, and what this does is it condemns the sinner. It does not facilitate revelation that would result in the redemption of the sinner because it does not transmit the gospel, right? We must have the scriptures for that. So, the scriptures are necessary for the articles of Faith. There are things we can know through reason, through observation of the world, of creation. Those things will only condemn the unrepentant sinner. If a person is to be saved, they must, if the person is to believe, they must believe on that which the scriptures set forth that cannot be discerned or known through nature. Trinity, incarnation, redemption, and so on. All things necessary for salvation are delivered to us in Holy Scripture. And in, in a certain sense, we could say that that's, that's done apart from tradition. That is to say that everything necessary for our redemption and our salvation is revealed to us in Holy Scripture. We do not need another source of revelation for that, right? There's, there, that, there is sufficient revelation in Scripture for the redemption of man. Um, it, it stands to reason, and it, and it, it goes without sh saying, at least it should, that tradition may assist our understanding of Scripture. It, it, it can also account for the transmission of Scripture through the centuries. Um, translation work, right? Uh, translation work itself is not an inspired uh, uh, operation. It is something that, that man has done under the providence of God and and we've gotten to where we are with translations now, and, and there's a certain sense in which tra uh, tradition is involved in that and, and accounts for the transmission of, of, uh, of the scriptures. It's, tradition may very well be used as a means in the providence of God for the good of God's people. But transition, uh, tradition itself does not contain anything necessary unto the Christian life that has not been revealed in Scripture. I think that's the main thing we want to say. We want to give place to tradition because it's obvious there is one. But at the same time, we want to understand that 
there's nothing in the tradition that is necessary for our salvation or our lives as Christians that has not been revealed in Scripture. All right. And so um, tradition is helpful. Tradition is an instrument. Tradition is a means. And in many ways, Scripture assumes tradition. Um, but tradition cannot give us anything new. Uh, aside from what's already in the Scriptures, tradition is not going to, to give us anything substantially new or different. Feast days and these kinds of things that Rome has, those are all, those are all um, you know, part of Roman Catholic canon ritual, we might say, but they're not, but those things are not revealed in the scriptures. They came along afterwards and were developed by means of church councils and so on. And what we would want to say as Baptists, and all Protestants would want to say this, is that those feast days are not found in scripture. They are not found in Scripture, and so they are not necessary for the Christian life. We would argue that the papacy is not found in Scripture, and so is indeed not necessary for the Christian life, and so on. There are all sorts of traditions that Rome has on the basis of its doctrine of Scripture and tradition. Traditions which are equal to Scripture and must be believed on just like that which is revealed through Scripture. It's necessary for the Christian and so on even though it's not revealed in Scripture. And so that's that's where the problem is. Uh, I think the, the main uh, difference uh, in our view of tradition uh, and Rome's view of tradition would be uh, that Rome's view of tradition uh, makes tradition uh, essentially what amounts to be another source of revelation, uh, another, another means by which we might know revelation that is not revealed in Scripture. The Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 1, article 5, gives place to tradition. It, it, it does say, We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the Church of God to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So, there are subordinate authorities. That's not a question. Um, there are teachers, pastors, confessional documents, statements of faith, commentaries, so on and so forth. There are all sorts of subordinate authorities, um, which we would say are norma normata, normed norms. They're subordinate authorities, but they're subordinate authorities that are subject to Scripture and are authoritative um, in relation to the authority of Scripture. They're not equal to Scripture because, uh, number one, they're not providing uh, for us anything that's not found in Scripture in the first place. And, and number two, uh, they are there to be used in service of our understanding of Scripture, not, uh, not as means of understanding something other than what's in Scripture. And I think that's the biggest difference here. So... I'm going to go ahead and end there. We're at 35 minutes. I like to keep it under 40, if at all possible, with these episodes in the different series. If this was helpful, please do not hesitate to share it with someone else. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and thumbs up would be nice as well. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.